0: Canadian Military History Podcast. Music provided by the 48th Highlanders of Canada. Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Before I get into part two of my interview with Master Corporal Jody Middick, I want to take care of a few points here. First of all, I want to apologize for the brutal editing cuts. I wouldn't even call them editing cuts. They're more like butcher cuts on the last episode. What happened? Because there was a natural break in the episode, I needed to fit it in onto the upload that I had. And it was important for me to have that episode broken up into the two parts. But when I went to cut it, it was just a tiny little bit too big. So I was shaving an eighth of a second off here, a quarter second off there. And I started at the beginning, sort of the introductory portion. I cut out a whole bunch from my own introductory portion just to get it to slim down and tighten up. And I even cut out 50% of the music at the intro just to get it to fit, just to shoehorn it into my web service provider's allotment of how many megabytes I can upload. Apologies for those editing cuts, those butcher cuts, on the beginning of the episode with Jody Medic, but nevertheless, we got a good episode. The remainder of the episode was edited properly, just the beginning was a little rough. Second of all, you may notice I'm changing the music up a bit. I did try to do something, some effect, it didn't quite work out on the last episode, but I cleaned it up for this episode. Johnny Cope is a piece of music that always has a special place with me. When I was a company sergeant major, we used to start the parade night every single Tuesday night with the piper coming out onto the balcony at Fort York Armory and playing Johnny Cope, and by the time that tune was done my expectation was that the section commanders would be calling their sections up to attention, starting off with roll call, quick inspection, and getting the job done. And that Johnny Cope was the tune that we used to get things rolling every single parade night. So a very important tune for me, and that is what that tune is all about, getting started, getting going, and I think it's very fitting to have at the beginning of the podcast. Just to let you know, I'll be taking a break. I've been producing the show with an episode every single week since the beginning of September. So right now, we're well into December, and I need to take a break. I need to pause, recharge my batteries. It's been a good run. I'm going to take a quick break, come back in January of 2014. For you future listeners, there'll be no difference for you, but those of you listening, as the episodes come out, there will be a gap. And in January of 2014, we're going to be coming back with some pretty good guests. I have some interesting guests lined up. I have people coming in from the 2nd Canadian Mechanized Brigade Group in Petawawa. I have a guest lined up from HMCS York. I have a retired general from LFCA, which is now the 4th Canadian Division. Retired general from Land Force Central Area. And I also have the Army Commander lined up. So hopefully I can get those episodes recorded cut maybe i can get ahead of the loop a little bit during the break and get some episodes for you to listen to so without any further build-up let's carry on with the second part of the episode with master corporal jody middick so changing gears a little bit who is your greatest influence or who's the most memorable character you've encountered so
1: many i remember one warrant i think his name was pike warrant pike and he had one eye looked one way, the other guy looked the other. He had this great big bushy mustache, but he was real thin, I remember. And, man, he had such a way of talking. I remember being like 20, and I was just gone reg first, so I was back private again. And amongst the reg force guys, you are, despite two or three years in the reserves. He looks at me one day, and I couldn't tell if he was actually looking at me because of the way his eyes were. And he's like, Mavic de Feudal. Get that Rucksack gun, I'm gonna go Mac on you. Like, I don't even know what that means and I'm um, scared and but but he didn't even he didn't even come close. The most memorable character. I can't pick one, man. I gotta be honest. It's uh, I I love soldiers. You know, I really do. They're such a cross of everything you think you know about humanity and they're such a blend personalities that and they're all there to do the same thing. And that uh, makes like, each guy and
0: each girl their their own little story to be told. But Was there an instructor or a leader that influenced you the most? I won't get to say his name, but I had a
1: platoon warrant, I guess. He was probably one of the most influential guys in my career because, like I said, I joined in 94. Uh, we were yelling bang, bang at each other back then, literally, during training. Blanks, when we got blanks, it was like, oh, oh they actually decided to spend money today because money was so short, being 17 and just joining, you think that's normal. But I remember one day sitting outside the platoon area at Y101 in Petawawa, where the 1RCR headquarters, and uh, this bush walks by in the hallway with a bolt-action rifle that I'd never seen before. I was like, what? what's that? <laughs> because at the time, there were so few snipers, and they had such a low profile because they were treated as every other soldier So he's a sniper, but he's also a company P.O.L. sergeant. I said, what? What are those in my platoon warrant? He was like standing next to me. He says, that's one of the snipers. That's one of the guys taking the sniper corps. Uh, Okay. We have snipers? What? There are snipers around here and you can get on a course to become one? And he was like, yeah. Why? Does that type of thing interest you? And I was like, yes. Of course it does. It's the snipers. These guys are legends. He's like, oh, I'm a sniper. He's like, well, we'll talk, right? And so after that, I remember he was transferred into the platoon headquarters to be his radio man, and I didn't realize at that at the time but he was keeping a very close eye on me to check, it, to figure out. Because sniping is one of those jobs, even though you get paid the same as the clerk or the cook or you know, anybody else, you have to be vetted guys you're going to be working with. And I was being vetted, and I didn't even know it one day. Maybe a year and a half or so later, a sniper course came up that there was going to be one. And I was just like, how do I get on this thing? And he never told me I was good to go. Basically, he had decided to put my name forward to be a sniper. And that changed the whole direction of my career because I was 25 of us tried out, 10 of us got on the and 3 of us passed. So if he hadn't decided that I was worthy of the sniper qualification, who knows where I'd be today? Because so he, him letting me go on the course was a huge honor and he has always been a guy that I have since that day up to and you know every now and then we do still talk and I oh I owe a lot for the direction my career went because I spent a good half of my Red Force career being a sniper, and it was being the best job I ever had, and, and I'm the most proud of, and, and like I said, being a sniper on the battlefield probably, in my heart, is one of the greatest achievements I could have done in the career I chose. So, yeah, yeah I'd say that Warren who, if he did this, he'll know exactly who he is. be the captain now. He was probably the most influential in my career.
0: Jody, what was the greatest challenge you had to overcome?
1: Well, without Drew Mushy, obviously recovering from stepping on a landline which is as much a part of the job as anything else we do, right? That is prepared to be casualty. So on the day we were patrolling and and I stepped on a landmine on top of a mortar and lost both feet, started a whole new career in recovering and figuring out who this post-combat warrior guy is. And it's been a process ever since that I'm still kind of working. I stepped on the landmine with a mortar bomb underneath it. I lost both feet. At that point, almost six months doing the job, the real job, of being a sniper and being a soldier on the battlefield. And be seven years in January coming up. That's been, you know, the last third of my career has been being this wounded guy. And it's, it's something that, that's been the biggest challenge because I was set. I was going to be a sniper. I was going to try out for JTF. If I made it, I'd be a sniper with them. Even if I didn't, I'd stay a sniper with the RCR Probably teach the battle school or at the combat school in Gagetown for a couple years. I'm sure retire a soldier and then do mm-hmm. private training on the side probably because I was going to retire the 48 to 25 years. Snipers are good at math as long as it has to do with trajectory <laughs> and ballistics. Yeah, it's been a real challenge figuring out who who the guy is post landmine.
0: Well, it's interesting that you said, I started my new career as recovering. Yeah. And for me, who I'm not recovering, it's difficult for me to appreciate that until you say it in those words. And you say, I started my new career as a recovering soldier.
1: Well, that's it, because there's no course. There's no basic getting over a landmine strike course. There's no sucking chest moving course. It's like that you've got one. There's no lost an arm course or broke a back course, whatever you end up suffering from. And that's how we approach things. Everything's a course and a qualification, and you're kind of on your own. You're making up your training plans. <laughs> As you know, the way I approached it is it was my, I treated it almost like I was on course. I went in, the therapists were my instructors. Unfortunately, we use civilian facilities that in 2007, early 2007, weren't really prepared to deal with the types of people soldiers are. They did their best. They did I'm not saying it was bad care, but it wasn't probably as good as it could have been if they had been ready for soldiers to become part of their patients lineup. But I went in there, they are my instructors, they're the schmees. They are gonna teach me how to get better, how to use my new equipment being my prosthetics because they're not legs, they're equipment. And there's different types, just like there's different rifles. You gotta learn how to use each one the best of your ability. And that's how I approached it. I, very seriously, my goal was to get back onto the battlefield, not realizing how bad, or not bad, but how hard it is as a double amputee to do things. One leg below the knee, if you're going to lose anything, lose one leg below the knee, that's like the Cadillac. And you can get back to like 90%, last 10% is just fitness. You keep working out, you're fine. There's a ranger in the States. There's probably a couple of them now, but, I mean, I just, I remember reading with one airborne ranger, and he lost his leg early in Afghanistan, I believe, probably 03, 04, maybe even 02, I can't remember. And he, within a couple of years, he was jumping and patrolling again with his guys. He's uh, probably a master sergeant by now. So, I mean, you can do it. And double below isn't impossible, but I think I've heard of a few guys that have done their best. But there's a lot of we've had people go back over as single-leg amputees uh, that it seems to be that the even above the knee single is it seems to be you, you, with a big leg, your body able to adapt to do to do enough. But anyway, it took me two and a half years to realize that the combat soldier is gone, and that's it. There's no wishing anything else. There's no physical activity I can do. There's no technology available right now that would allow me to go back and do the job I did, which was being a sniper, because you're a liability. I tried to go back as a gunner on a a Griffin, one of the door gunners. They were in General Natinchek at the time, CDS. He authorized it as long as I could qualify. There's the whole BFP thing and then things like that, something I just wasn't prepared to do in 2009 because I consider myself like a seven-year-old. I'm still learning how to do everything. And things like that are just, the skin isn't designed. They carry large heavy weight over long distances when you're wearing prosthetics, it just isn't. And the prosthetics aren't to the point where they can be loaded with your weight through the skeletal system the way that you're used to, the way you're supposed to carry yourself. A lot of it was learning how to be an amputee, a lot of it was learning how to be graceful with it and not be angry at the world. Because I voluntarily went into this job and I would visualize for 12 years what it might be like to be wounded or killed or see my friends wounded or killed. I thought I handled it pretty good until until I realized I'm no longer able to. You're always a soldier, but I can't, I'm not able to soldier. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, your, your mind does a shift. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if you can hear her, but I got my two-year-old in my lap right now. Yep. Something, we have a five-year-old as well. One of the medics that her bison am came to pick me up. She's the mother of these beautiful kids. I didn't plan to have kids. Like all good soldiers, I had two ex-fiances and a dozen serious girlfriends sacrificed the job. Now, I'm not saying everybody does it, but that's how it seemed to be going with me. And I decided I wasn't going to be that dad that missed all the birthdays and stuff like my dad did and like a lot of my buddies did and still do because that's what drew is required. But they do the job anyway. I just thought, you know, I'm better off not doing that because I really wanted to be a dad when I had kids. And Alana and I got together after the tour and after my recovery and we had a baby. That's another shift, something I never would have done before. Like I wouldn't have had this family, right? I had to accept that this is, and it's awesome. I love being a dad. It's forget that day. I just talked about Medusa being a dad to these two little girls, is the manliest thing I'm ever going to (laughs) do changing diapers. I don't care what anybody says. that's man work (laughs) and you got to be a superhero to these kids. You're making people. Something I wasn't going to be in a position to do maybe ever. I don't know how life goes, but if I hadn't been wounded, I wouldn't be where I am now and I wouldn't trade it now. Yeah, I got these great big blue eyes staring at me right now trying to play jokes with me and and, and I wouldn't have that in my life if I hadn't stepped in that landmine. If I hadn't been in that on that grid square that day, three other guys walking over that spot, the snipers, guys aren't supposed to get wounded, never mind the team leaders or whatever, and so three of my best friends stepped over it. I stepped on it and now I got, I got these little angels in my life. Yeah. How do you put a value on that? Like the most challenging thing was realizing that guy's dead. That guy died in the explosion, that master of the battlefield or whatever, whatever lie you want to tell yourself for the situation. And that, it was hard to accept. And uh, even sometimes now I still, sometimes I'll look at pictures of myself or of the guys and so, yeah, and I miss it. I miss it so bad. I I would have done so. I would have soldiered for free, <laughs> as long as the queen fed me, you know, and housed me. That's not life anymore. That's been the hardest thing. The last couple of years have been really easy or easier. that I've gotten over it. But for a good two and a half, three years, I was I fought it two like no way. I'm gonna get back over there. I'm gonna be relevant to the battle and. I'm going to be useful to my comrades. When 1RCR went back in 2010, it almost it floored me. It was devastating because I, I was convinced I was going to go with them. But I couldn't. My friend, my sniper team is back over there without me. I was dying inside. Every time a casualty would get called in, I was praying, just not one of my guys, not one of the guys that I trained or mentored or, or came up under. Wasn't always a happy story, but but to me also, I almost envy the guys that fall in battle because they're balling doing what they love to do, what they signed up to do. And that's one of those things that you deal with, I guess, as, as someone that's been sidelined, but sidelined by things that you absolutely knew could happen. Yeah that has been the hardest part just accepting that i am no longer sniper team leader in the canadian forces i am now daddy <laughs> which is awesome probably a way better job and also just figuring out okay how do i go from here i was only 30 i know a guy who had both feet blown off when he was like 19 with one of the van doos we go through a serious identity crisis so a lot of us and me included you know i've seemed to have done a little bit better about it some would say I did The Amazing Race, that TV show. I do keynote speaking now. I'm trying to get a job on radio and write a book and stuff, so I'm dealing with it. But, I mean, you know where I want to be? I want to be cold, wet, and hungry and tired in a scrape hole that I dug in the side of a hill with my sniper team partner. Yeah, That's where I want to be. That's where I want to be. But I can't be that guy, so i gotta just, I got to learn uh, who this guy is and, and learn to love, love every moment of my life as it goes forward.
0: I did have a follow-up question. I was going to ask you what you're up to now. Yeah. But I think you've covered that off through your participation in The Amazing Race. You said you're writing a book. You said you're doing keynote speaking. You're looking forward to a career in radio. Is there anything else that you're working on? I know you're involved with some charities. I started the charity
1: called Never Quit Foundation because Never Quit became my daily mantra, affirmation, whatever you want to call it. So me and a guy from 3RCR, uh, Master Corporal Dave Heroux, I asked him to help me out because I had this idea for a charity or something, not necessarily a charity, but for, we try to form a peer mentoring group through positive experiences. For example, Dave and I each spent probably close to 10 grand each on our credit cards, and we brought 10 other injured and a kid from Ottawa who lost both feet to bacterial meningitis, the UFC, when it went to Skydome in Toronto in 2011, I believe. So we brought them down, and my friends of, with the Trailer Park Boys. So they showed up on their own dime, and Canadian Office gave us tickets, and the Fairmont Royal York gave us hotel rooms, and we just well, we spent ten grand on plane tickets and incidentals, and we brought these guys to Toronto. We got our money back, donations and a sponsorship from a T-shirt company, and. But the idea was to put these guys that are from spread across, we had guys from the East Coast to the West Coast and everywhere in between as best we could. We had amputees, double amputees, mental injuries, but it was a lot of amputees, obviously, because of my injuries. The idea was that put them in a room together and let them know they're not alone, they're not the only ones, and that they can now be mentors or be mentored and have a peer I knew we were on the right track when one of the young guys from PET, he had lost a foot to a mine similar to my explosion. I was telling everyone, you know, we're going to show off the legs, we're going to use it to get a little bit of VIP from the UFC, hey, here's a bunch of veterans, and you know the soldiers, they don't want too much attention. So the guys are kind of resisting a little bit, and they're not into it like I am, whereas I'm not being part of the group, even though I'm there. I'm trying to organize it. And the one guy, this young fella, he's a, private. He shows up to, we were meeting at the bar in the lobby before we went to the fan expo for the UFC and he's in jeans. And I noticed out of the corner of my eye, I'm like, oh, I'll pull him aside in a few minutes and I'll just say, hey, go put on some shorts or whatever. You know, I just ask him Is he's not comfortable showing off his prosthetic and stuff. I didn't want to make it a big deal of it. And suddenly he gets up and runs off. And his girlfriend is still sitting there and she's kind of like, she's almost got a tear in her eye. I'm like, oh, oh, I'm thinking something bad happened. He's pissed off. He's not coming. She says, "Yeah, he's going to put on shorts." I said, "Yeah, well, good, because I told him to wear shorts." And uh, and she says, "No, Jody, you don't, you don't get it. He hasn't worn shorts since he had his foot blown off. He's refused to wear shorts, even in the gym. I guess he wears track pants." And I was like, "That's it. We got it. This is this. We got one kid, and he was a young fella, you know. And we got him to make. He felt silly not showing off his prosthetic leg. And by silly, I don't mean he felt." like a fool. He just realized he was in a group of people that aren't going to judge him and that aren't and and understand what he's going through and that he needs to be proud of what he looks like now. And that right there, I said, okay. I said, Dave. And Dave said, yeah, we're going to form a foundation. We're going to make a good go at this and see if we can't help a couple more guys feel the way he did. After that day, he's been proud of it ever since. Also, we had this young guy, Tyler. He was 13 at the time, now he's 16, chasing girls. He's been asked to try for the Paralympic sledge hockey team. It gave him a network of guys he could talk to and hang out with and look to for support as well. Whenever she's not sure what to do for him, she'll give me a call or give me a note. The Never Quit Foundation, and a lot of it as well, is to help me because I need an outlet. And also, I need to know that there's other people out there that support me and that I can support. As soldiers we always lean on each other and you should. You know, we just had three examples this week of guys that maybe they lost all hope and they didn't feel like they could turn to anyone or if they had it it didn't work for them. That's the kind of thing we want to avoid is guys being so so down on themselves they decide to, to go and do to do harm to themselves and, and stuff so we got to do the best of the community to, to look out for each other because regardless of Veterans Affairs and, and everybody else, at the end of the day, your fire team partner, you got to move with one foot on the ground and you got to make sure you keep an eye in your circle of influence and and hope that, that you can try and help them or if you need help, reach out to them and be got to We got we to gotta really do better in, my, in the community to help each other and not worry about what anybody else can do for us.
0: We got to do it for ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to post a link to your Never Quit Foundation in the show notes. Okay. And then that way, if people want to get more information about the Never Quit Foundation, they can just click on the link. You have a website? Neverquitfoundation.ca. Excellent. And we're on Facebook and we're on Twitter. And that's it. So I'll make sure I post a link in the show notes so that people can find out more information All right. and hopefully they can make some donations to your cause as well. Excellent. That'd be awesome. So we've come to the end of the podcast. It's one of our longer ones. I'll probably have to split it into two. Is there anything else you'd like to say?
1: I'm good for now. I think thanks for giving me a chance to tell some stories and strap on my helmet one more time and and have a platform to spread stories. And I don't know if you can hear, but my little Kira is here with me and... Thanks for getting in touch and thanks for doing what you're doing to, to help keep the memories alive.
0: You're very welcome. I'm glad to do this. It's something I enjoy doing. One of those things, you enjoy doing it and you put the effort into it and it has its own rewards. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%, brother. Take care and I hope to see you one day. We'll make sure we meet up somewhere in our different circles. Okay, you too. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at MikeLacroixCMHP at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.CanadianMilitaryHistoryPodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, Please click the PayPal link on the webpage. The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. End tag music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast, and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike Production.